This fall, we've been in a series called Formed. As we have seen, the colors are beginning to change. We have been exploring how Jesus transforms and changes disciples as they follow him together. And what we've discovered so far in this series is we've seen not only how Jesus forms disciples, but we've learned that discipleship with Jesus is not an individualistic endeavor. It takes place in a particular kind of community that is marked by four words that we've been diving into together. The word belong, becoming a belonging community, a believing community. And a community today, we're going to take a look at this word become that's increasingly becoming like Jesus Christ. Last week, Pastor Adam showed us how we're committed as a church here at River West to cultivating a believing community that's also welcome to folks that are wrestling with doubts or perhaps even deconstructing certain elements in their faith. And today, in this series, as we come to this word, become, we're going to look at this invitation from Jesus of Nazareth to not only believe the words that he went around proclaiming, but something more startling, to actually become like him. So right off the bat today, I want us to read one of these startling places in the New Testament where Jesus extends an invitation to follow him and become like him to his disciples through a parable. It's a very short parable. It's only two sentences long, maybe one of Jesus' shortest parables, but in it, he's going to give us a vision of what actually is entailed in becoming like him as his disciples. In Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 39, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? The answer being, you can talk back, even with the mask. No, it's not a trick question. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Yes, but that's actually not a good idea. Will they not both fall into a pit? Answer, yes. You guys are doing great. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, you probably notice in this parable that it's actually a parable about discipleship because Jesus ends it by saying a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his or her teacher. And if you remember back at the onset of this series, we defined the word disciple, which in Greek is mathematics. Mathetes, a Greek word mathetes, that is sometimes translated student in many versions of scripture, trans, translations of scripture. We defined a disciple as someone who entrusts themselves to Jesus Christ as their Lord, Savior, and Teacher. 
entrusting our entire way of life to Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior and our teacher. And now here Jesus tells this parable to reveal that the ultimate goal of discipleship is to become like him. As many of you may be aware in first century rabbinic tradition, when, which Jesus belonged to and taught out of, when you became someone's disciple, you were not only committed to believing what your rabbi went around proclaiming and teaching, but instead the goal was to actually become like your teacher. This is why Jesus didn't simply invite his disciples to come listen to his sermons in synagogue after synagogue or subscribe to his podcast. Instead, he went around saying, come, leave behind your nets. Get out of your boat. Come, follow me. Take on my yoke, my teaching, my way of life, and let my ways become your ways. Because the goal of discipleship is not simply to amass a bunch of spiritual information, but to experience a spiritual transformation. As we sit underneath Jesus as our Lord, Savior, and teacher, to begin to not only become better informed, but to emulate his way of life from the way that he worshiped and read the scriptures to the way that he cared for the outcast and for the poor. I love how Richard Foster, the author of Celebration of Discipline, describes this transformation that can take place in our life as we become acquainted with living out the way of Jesus. Look at this quote. This is beautiful. I love how Richard Foster describes this transformation that's possible for us. He says, thus the daring goal of the Christian life could be summarized as our being formed conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And the wonder in all of this is that Jesus Christ has come among his people as our ever living savior, teacher, Lord, and friend. He who is the way shows us the way to live so that we increasingly come to share in his love, hope, feelings, and habits. He agrees to be yoked with us as we are yoked to him and to train us in how to live our lives as he would live them if he was in our place. Isn't that good? That's so, so amazing, isn't it? But on the other hand, it sounds a bit daunting and if we're being honest, even disconnected from our everyday experience of following Jesus. Am I right? Can we be honest in church? After all, is there anyone here today in hearing this sermon so far is thinking deep down, you know what? I think I've got this whole becoming like Jesus thing down. Anyone? If that's seriously you, you should either be up here preaching this sermon or way more likely, you're actually one of the blind folks in Jesus' parable. 
So for the rest of us who sincerely want to become disciples of Jesus, who are formed into his image, but who are also feeling frustrated, disillusioned, and weary with where you're at in your own spiritual formation, chances are you feel one of two dominant emotions today. You either likely feel clueless or hopeless. Some of you, I imagine, you feel kind of clueless. You don't know how to go about becoming like Jesus. It sounds wonderful, but how do you experience this transformation? Or probably way more of us, we feel hopeless. You actually don't know if it's possible for someone like you with all of your glaring imperfections and sinful inclinations and shortcomings to become like this rabbi, Jesus. So regardless of where you're at, I want you to know that I stand before you today, not only as your pastor and teacher, but also as an imperfect disciple, an apprentice of Jesus who's in process. And so for the remainder of our time, I want to pose three honest questions that I hope and pray are not only personally helpful for where you're at in your spiritual journey, but these questions will also help help us capture a vision of what it looks like to become a community where we are becoming like Jesus together. So if you're taking notes, here's the three honest questions we're going to ask of the text this morning. Question number one, why is this process of becoming like Jesus so difficult? That's an honest question and it needs to be asked. Question number two, how does this transformation happen? How does it actually happen? And question number three, far more personal. Is this transformation truly possible for me, for you, for us together as a community of Jesus? First and foremost, if the goal and uh, purpose of Christian discipleship is to become like Jesus, then why is this process so difficult? It's hard. When you read verses like Luke Chapter 6, verse 40, that tells us that every disciple who's fully trained will be like his teacher. Or perhaps a verse, a classic verse like Romans 8, 29, that talks about this supernatural transformation that is supposed to take place in our life. Listen to these words that Paul writes. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why the disconnect? Haven't you ever secretly wondered if 65% of Americans proclaim and profess to be Christians, why aren't churches today filled with more people who live and love and look like Jesus looks? Moreover, if you and I are not only invited by the scriptures, but predestined by a sovereign God to become like Jesus, as the scriptures tell us, then why does following Jesus 
constantly feel like a battle and like we're swimming upstream. Friends, have you ever considered that the reason that you feel this way is because Jesus is not the only one that's making disciples in our world today? Jesus says as much in the passage that we just read in Luke chapter 6 in verse 39. He told them this parable to reveal to them a spiritual reality. He asked the question, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? When he refers to the blind here, it's a nod to the Pharisees who Jesus throughout his ministry called blind guides. It's Jesus warning to his disciples a way of saying, beware of who you're following because the world is actually filled with teachers who claim to be enlightened, but who are in reality blind as a bat. Sadly, it often takes falling to a, into a pit or a personal crisis of some sort before we realize that we have been lied to and duped and led astray by guides who are blind. But the truth is, and I want you to capture this this morning, whether you realize it or not, whether you're a Christian and follower of Jesus or not, we're all being discipled by someone or something. So the real question is not whether or not you're a disciple, but rather whose disciple are you? Because in the end, again, we're, we're regardless of where you're at in your devotion to Jesus, we're all being formed and shaped into the image of whoever we follow. Case in point, as some of you may know, my wife Julie has been a preschool teacher for over a decade. Uh, and actually, she could not love what she does more. She's one of those rare creatures that loves spending her time and energy hanging out with little children. And one of the things that she enjoys most about her job, she just radiates this gratitude and joy for what she gets to do, is she regularly gets to ask kids, who do you want to be when you grow up? Remember being asked that question as a kid? My wife gets to have these conversations all the time. And over the years, typically the answers haven't changed much, much over decades. Answers when asking kids, who do you want to be when you grow up? They say things like astronaut, fireman, police officer, professional athlete, musician, teacher, mommy, daddy, but my wife has noticed that the answers have started to change recently in a way that's a bit disturbing. In fact, this is fascinating. A recent survey of 3,000 kids from the United States, United Kingdom, and China were all asked the question, who do you want to be when you grow up? And do you want to know what their answers were? You actually don't, but I'm going to show you anyway. There's a chart. 
And this is hard to read, but American kids, when asked the question, the top answer actually was a YouTube influencer or a vlogger. In China, the top answer is still astronaut and vlogger or YouTube influencer is actually five on the list. So apparently American kids want to be YouTube influencers and kids in China want to be astronauts and go astronauts and go to space, which as a parent of, of a tween child and a teenager, this is super disturbing to say the least on many, many levels. But it's also evidence that the digitally immersive world that we're all constantly swimming in is constantly around the clock forming and shaping who we are, our aspirations, our thoughts, our deepest desires, in ways that even the brightest data scientists and sociologists don't fully understand yet. From our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts that feed us content that is informed by artificially intelligent algorithms that cater to our political and social and ideological appetites and biases to the news outlets that we follow and choose, to the shows that we watch on Netflix and Hulu and Apple Plus and the dozen others we subscribed to in the pandemic. Make no mistake, Jesus is not the only one in our world that is making disciples. As one friend of mine put it so well, our world is a discipleship formation machine. But this battle for our formation, it's actually not just a modern phenomenon. Long before the advent of the internet and social media and the 24-hour news cycle, which is actually being shown to actually sow division and to tear us apart, and I could rant about that for a long time, but I won't, the Apostle Paul exhorted a group of disciples in the Roman Empire with the following words. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, a classic text in the New Testament that promises that we can experience this spiritual transformation. Listen to what Paul says as he wrote to a community of disciples and Jesus followers. In Romans chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Super interesting. The term conform that Paul uses here in verse two is a fascinating Greek term that actually we get the word schematic from. It's the Greek word suschematizo. We get the word schematic from this word and it, it's translated to be molded according to a pattern or a plan. And so what Paul is saying here 
which is so provocative, is whether we realize it or not, our world and our culture has a schematic and a plan for your formation. The world actually has a blueprint for who you and I are becoming. And I made a chart. Some of you like visuals. This is for you if that's you. What does it look like actually as we are conformed, the pressing influences in our culture together actually are a schematic, they make up a schematic for our formation. And it involves three things. Culturally accepted truths, culturally informed practices, and culturally conforming community. And as I unpack this briefly, my desire is not to bemoan the secular humanistic culture that, that we're living in, but to actually inform you that this is the mold and the pattern and the shape that without any intentionality, every day that you wake up, these are the pressing influences on your life. You don't have to do anything to be shaped and formed by these three things. First, the culturally accepted truths. Our culture has a message. It's constantly seeking ways to disciple us into a particular set of truths around our sexuality, our race, our gender, justice issues, equity, power, and personal freedom, and our perception of it, which in turn shapes the way that we live. It shapes our practices. It shapes how we live and we, we wake up, what we do with our bodies. But ultimately, the desire with those truths is to inform our practices. Living in the Pacific Northwest, these practices often include innocuous things like obsessing over overpriced coffee, microbreweries, recycling restaurants, and rain jacket collections. When I moved here 14 years ago, I'll have you know I did not drink coffee or own anything from Columbia Sportswear. The first staff meeting that we had at River West, Pastor Guy was actually leading us in a coffee tasting. We were tasting coffee, not the coffee you have in your hand. Are you enjoying the coffee? Is it good? It's good coffee, right? I quickly realized I'm actually not in Colorado anymore. I'm in a new environment. Now, like most of you today, I'm addicted to snobby coffee, and all I own is rain jackets and jeans. Why? Because this city that we live in is excellent at making disciples. You live here long enough in the greater Portland metro area, and it's going to inform many of your practices. Those are not all bad things. Again, they can be innocuous things, but there's also many practices that will lead you headlong into the pit that Jesus warns us about, the hookup culture, the radical transformation in our society as we're seeing it right now around reorienting our vision and our beliefs around our bodies and our sexuality. And ultimately, this all leads to forming a culturally conforming community. 
a community that's actually only inclusive and accepting towards others who conform to what they believe and practice. On the surface, it looks inclusive, but it actually, unless you conform, it's not a belonging community. In Portland, these communities tend to be ethnically and racially homogenous, hyper-individualistic, and ethically and morally subjective. So what Paul is essentially saying in writing to this group, this church, collection of disciples and Jesus followers, is don't be conformed to this schematic. Instead, be transformed by a merciful God who has an infinitely greater design and schematic for your life to conform you into the image of his son and make you and I more like Jesus. Does that sound better? Can I get a couple? Does that sound better? Okay, it sounds better, but it begs the question then, how does this transformation actually happen? How does it happen? Okay, I've heard many sermons on becoming like Jesus. How does this happen? Well, counter to our culture schematic and plan for our formation, Christian formation, which is different than cultural formation, it involves three primary things. The truths that we believe, which is scripture, it's informed by scripture. The practices that we cultivate, which includes, but is not limited to, the spiritual disciplines and the community that we belong to that we call church. First, the truths that we believe in Romans chapter 12, classic text in verse two, we read, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The goal of reading scripture or attending Bible study, or even listening to a sermon like you're doing right now is not simply to walk away better informed about the scriptures or Jesus' way of life. The purpose is to actually be transformed by the living truths of scripture. In fact, the word transformed that Paul uses is the Greek term metamorpho, which we get the word metamorphosis from. It means to be changed from one thing to another in the same way that a caterpillar can emerge from its chrysalis and become a butterfly, which according to Google takes approximately seven to 10 days. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if we could all become like Jesus if we just read our Bible for a week and a half, tops? But unfortunately, Christian formation doesn't work that way. Becoming like Jesus, it's something that's better measured in decades, not days. But over time, as we immerse our lives, our heart, our mind, our soul, 
in the truths of scripture, not just in our quiet times, but in community, the Holy Spirit not only begins to renew our minds, as Paul tells us, but actually reorient our entire way of life as well. To the point where we not only begin to discern God's will and plan and schematic for our life, but also the lies from culture that we've come to take on, that we've been blind to. Those are exposed and uprooted and replaced with God's good and acceptable and perfect plan. And so with the Holy Spirit's help, over a long period of time, we begin to pursue and practice this will and this plan as well. That is the purpose of the scriptures, is not to actually just make you a better informed disciple, which is critical, but to actually transform and reorient your heart so that it spills over in your life. And this leads us to the practices that we cultivate. Bible study alone or scripture information alone will not transform you into someone that is becoming increasingly like Jesus. It actually takes practices because the way of Jesus is just that. It's a way. It's a way of life. Jesus says as much in verse 40 of Luke chapter 6, where we began. Listen to this verse again. He says, a disciple or a student is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Did you notice that this transformation, this becoming like Jesus, doesn't happen instantaneously the moment that we come to faith? in Christ or believe the gospel, it takes training. The language Jesus uses in this parable even suggests that there's different stages in our discipleship with Jesus. There are those who are fully trained, which means that there are also those who are partially trained or even untrained. Our youngest son, Asher, just started playing soccer, which I could not be more excited about. Because unlike my oldest son, Hayden, who is on the rowing team, which I know nothing about rowing, I actually grew up playing soccer, played all the way up to college. I know you're looking at my physique. You're like, dude, you haven't played soccer in a long time. But I love soccer. I love watching soccer. I love thinking about soccer. So we've been kicking around the ball a lot recently, Asher and I. And in typical Asher form, when he commits to something, he is all in, like obsessively in. So he's got the shin guards, and he's got the jersey, and the soccer ball, and the cleats, and even a cool, super cool soccer haircut, which is a thing, by the way. If you don't know, you don't know. But if you know, you know. Like, he has the cool soccer haircut. But as I watched his first game, it was really apparent that he and the other kids on his team were missing one critical thing, <laughs> training. 
Man, they look good. No, parents of kids playing soccer when it's like my kid hasn't been playing soccer. You got the kid that grew up like in league. No, this is his first time. You know what I'm talking about right now. From the first whistle, defenders were getting confused with middle fielders. Half the players were offsides at all times. The goalies didn't know when to set up for a corner kick or a goal kick. It was hilarious. It's like, does this capture the flag? Like, what is happening? happening here. This does not look like soccer. Now, no matter how much Asher and his teammates tried to think their way into becoming great soccer players, they actually need a coach that's committed to teaching and training them. And it will take a lot of time and effort on Asher's part before he can play like Ronaldo or Messi or Pele. And in the same way, In order to become like Jesus, we need a coach. And God, in perfect grace and wisdom, could not give us a greater coach and teacher. He gives us the Holy Spirit to help us become more fully trained in the way of Jesus. And one of the primary ways that the Spirit accomplishes this training is through spiritual disciplines that we practice with him. So I have a list here of spiritual disciplines. Classically, the spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith have been divided in three categories. Inward disciplines, like meditation and prayer, silence, fasting, and study of the scriptures, or Lectio Divina, sacred formational reading of the scriptures. And there's outward disciplines, like simplicity, solitude, which actually teaches us how to be in community and connected in healthy ways by spending time alone, hospitality, and service. But there's also this category of disciplines called the corporate discipline. Did you know that? Disciplines like confession, like worship, guidance or discernment, communion, Sabbath. By and large, among churches in the West, we tend to focus on the inward discipline, stressing daily quiet times and personal prayer, or churches tend to focus on the outward disciplines, hospitality and service, while neglecting, in almost all cases, the formative role of the corporate disciplines. Now, I don't have time to unpack all of these, we could devote an entire sermon series just to exploring how we can participate and partner with the Holy Spirit in these practices. But I want you to understand this, that in the same way that you'll never become a great soccer player without a team, no matter how hard you train and try in the Christian life, it's impossible to become like Jesus apart from community. You simply cannot do it. 
In Romans chapter 12, it's why in verse one, in this classic text on transformation, Paul doesn't address individuals. Rather, he says, he appeals and says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, church, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, heart, mind, soul, spirit, physical bodies as well as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, which leads us on that triangle with the Holy Spirit's help, the truths that we believe, the practices that we cultivate, come to life and really begin to form and shape us as we belong to community. When you read the gospel accounts, Jesus never went around making disciples one by one. Instead, he formed a community of disciples that Jesus called the ecclesia, or we get the word church from this term. Now, perhaps you don't know the Greek term that originally referred to, to the church, the ecclesia, actually in its original context, referred to Greco-Roman cities where Caesar was worshipped as Lord and Caesar's customs and laws were lived out. In Jesus' day, every city under Roman rule had an ecclesia, a church where people would show up. They would actually learn about Caesar's way of life and Caesar's rules, that happened in a place called a church. So when Jesus went around declaring, I will build my ecclesia, my church, and the gates of hell won't be able to withstand this community. All the, the schematics of this world cannot resist the community that I'm going to build. This ecclesia, this church, that was a radical controversial claim. To say that you were building a church where Jesus was worshiped as Lord instead of Caesar and where Jesus' ways and Jesus' vision of a good life and peace were lived out instead of Rome's vision of a good life and the Pax Romana or the false peace of Rome. This was the church that Jesus and his disciples went around inviting people into. A community of belonging where the isolated and the lonely and the outcast and the refugee and sojourner are welcomed in. A community of belief where your deepest questions and doubts and skeptics are welcome a community where broken, imperfect people are learning to become like Jesus together. Friends, the church is not a place among many where discipleship happens. It is the primary place where we are conformed into the image of Christ together. Can I get an amen? It is to one such community of disciples living out the way of Jesus in the shadow of the Roman Empire that the author of Hebrews penned the following words of exhortation and encouragement. 
And as I read these words, I'm going to invite the worship team to, to come up this morning. I want you to quiet your heart. And I want you to imagine with me this vision that the author of Hebrews, it's actually a sermon, not a letter. This was a sermon that was likely preached in an ecclesia, a church, a called out people, community of Jesus. This sermon actually is going to paint a picture of what we have been talking about throughout this series, a belonging community, a believing community, and a community that together is becoming like Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 19, we read, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an, easy, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near.